Dr. Matthew Raphael Johnson, noted scholar on Russian history, orthodoxy, and its relationship with the modern world, joins us today to discuss the origins of the October Revolution, its geopolitical ramifications, and the parallels of the Soviet Empire with a modern-day American one. In his own words, Professor Johnson's academic work is dedicated to the delegitimization of the global capitalist system and the demystification of the ideology that justifies it. This is a demonic, serpentine leviathan spreading the postmodern acid of American-sponsored mass zombification to the world. The neurotic capitalist liberated the individual, only to be created the mass man, a crippled, malformed cipher, almost entirely incapable of higher-order thought. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been Welcome to the myth of the 20th century. I'm Nick, and I'm very pleased to introduce one of our most requested guests, Dr. Matthew Raphael Johnson. How are you, Dr. Johnson? You know, I got fired once from a university uh, teaching position in 2008 because I assigned Rosenberg's book, Myth of the 20th Century, in a 20th century history class, believe it or not. And, uh, and I, I, got, I, got, uh, I got into some trouble for that. I wonder why. I, if we ever get an opportunity, if you're amenable to it, we'd be more than happy to have you back on to discuss that book, actually. That would be a very interesting show. Yeah. Uh, and I would also like to, of course, introduce the, my co-hosts who are present today. That would be Adam and Hans. How are you boys doing? Good. I'm doing yeah. all right. Kind of having a lazy Sunday. Uh, well, it's comfy. We can we can talk about some some comfy subject matter. <laughs> the uh, uh, Dr. Johnson uh, can be found. I, I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with his work, but uh, for those that aren't, please avail yourself of it. You can find the bulk of his material at RoosJournal.org, as well as his radio program that is uh, published by uh, Radio Albion, and. He recently authored a book called The Soviet Experiment, which can be found through Barnes Review, which is a great publishing house, by the way. I own many of their books, and we'll be getting Dr. Johnson's book shortly. Um, okay, now, Dr. Johnson, why don't you tell us a little little bit about your background in, in academia, uh, just as, a, uh, as it relates, I suppose, to this? Because my first question is, today we will be discussing the, the Russian Revolution, the October Revolution, and uh, we... We should start with how this is taught in American universities, because in my experience, uh, it's basically uh, I've had professors get teary eyed, you know, talking about Lenin. And perhaps the only thing that they will say negative about this is that maybe uh, that Stalin sabotaged uh, some glorious revolution and that a, you know, a, tra a tragic ice pick ended the ideal, the great ideal of the 20th century. 
but what what is your experience in dealing with this in academia and how it is taught today? Want me to start with my background first? Yes, please. That, that would be appropriate. Yeah. Um, when I got my bachelor's degree in political science at the University of Hartford in Connecticut, my master's degree in the same field, more or less, from the University of Missouri, and then thanks to uh, Warren Buffett's uh, fellowship, two of them, I um, got my PhD in 1999 at the University of Nebraska uh, at Lincoln, and uh, he pretty much owns that university, so he he um, spends a lot of money on, on fellowships. Um, and throughout that period of time, I, you know, religiously, I was kind of all over the place. I mean, I was sort of Roman Catholic, but um, I, um, I, I lived among, without even realizing, you know, I lived among the Ukrainian exiles from Poland from World War II. Uh, they're all dead now in, uh, in Lincoln. And they took me in. Most of their um, children had abandoned them considering them country bumpkins and everything else, even though they, they burned their mortgage, you know, 20 years early um, and made a life for themselves and were sending all kinds of subversive, subversive stuff to, to Ukraine during the Cold War. And, um, you know, for, so for many years, I, I slowly learned the language and they got me into it. They got me into to orthodoxy and everything else. And, um, and that's how this got started because I'm an Irishman. I have no ethnic connection whatsoever to, to this which I think gives me a bit more uh, authority. Um, my PhD is in the history of political philosophy. And I, I did um, mostly Hegelian. My dissertation was on, on uh, the British Hegelian, Michael Oakeshott. Um, and I, I got into Russia near the end of my graduate work, mostly through theology. And then um, uh, when Putin took over in 2000, I was the very first to say that this man is going to be a leader against the, the New World Order, the regime, as I call it. And I was called every name in the book. Um, I was hired by Willis Cardo at the Barnes Review in Spotlight um, 20 years ago, uh, the early November 99. And no one, no one believed me. And um, of course today it's, it's, a, it's a mainstream opinion, but, but back then, uh, no one did. And the right wing thought he was just a KGB guy and, and a communist and everything else. And I explained, no, nope, this isn't the case. I was slowly learning the language at the time and uh, reading it especially. And um, I published my first essay on it, I think, in 2003. And again, I was called a communist. I was called a fascist, often at the same time, which made me laugh. Uh, and um, and that's how that whole thing got started. I converted Willis Cardo. I converted Michael Collins Piper. I converted Chris Bolin, Chris Pethrick, Paul Angel. And then they went on to convert all these other people. And now it's become this, he's this, this, this right-wing leader. Um, and that's all on me, for better or for worse. And, of course, another book. Uh, I'm the only one who wrote a, a book on the political, uh, political theory of, of Putin. It's called um, The Russian Populist, The Political Thought of, of Vladimir Putin, which is the only analysis of his political ideas in English, and certainly the only sympathetic one. Um, so this has kind of begin, you know, been my thing for a long time. Now, um, you know, I had to fight my way through grad school, as you might imagine. I didn't hide politics at all. You know, I was nationalist. Um, I guess I was, you could call me like a Buchananite, 
or a paleo con, like Sam Francis type guy, um, Joe Sobrin, that kind of thing, through grad school, which is, you know, they're, they're considered far right for those guys. But I learned that if, if they could, if they knew you were a nice guy and you were friendly and you didn't just, you know, walk in on the first day lecturing them, it'll be okay. Now, maybe I couldn't do that today, but that's really how you do it. And I was good at what I did. I was a very good teacher once I started teaching as a grad student. And um, I was an easy guy to get along with because I was in such a small minority. Um, I made it. And it can be done. And I didn't have to hide anything. You know, I didn't, I didn't hide a, a damn thing. Not even when I, you know, I had the Barnes Review and all this stuff on my curriculum vita when I applied for jobs. I don't hide from nothing. And uh, I paid for that, of course. But at least I don't have to worry about getting doxxed. I don't have to worry about any uh, integrity issues. Um, but I wrote my very first book, got it to, I guess it was in 2000, I don't know, I just turned 30, whenever the heck that was, The Third Rome, uh, Tsarism, Holy Russian Orthodoxy. The purpose of that book was an outline of my research agenda for the rest of my life. And there I explain, and it's really, it's a very angry book. I explain the endless list of myths about Russia in this case, prior to the revolution, that are taught in American universities. Um, I don't know if you guys heard of a, the, the law of social science that I founded, Johnson's Law, which is the more obscure the area, the more the press can lie about it and get away with it. You know, the fewer people know about something, the more you can get away with making up stories about it. And um, this is what happens with, with Russia up until the early, early 60s. No one in America knew knew anything about about Russia. Very few uh, you could go to very few universities offered the language, uh, unless you were of Russian background and an exile. Um, it was a it was a total black spot on on American history and American thinking. Do you and think the that's due to the language barrier at all? I was just going to say the Russian emigres, the exiles, didn't learn English, and they were always very suspicious. They were, you know, they had an, the FBI was after them quite often, um, and uh, of course they're worried about infiltration from the outside, from the from the KGB and 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 other forces like that. So they were very suspicious and very insular. So yeah, they didn't really learn English, and so they have their own institutions in this country, um, very good ones, religious and political, usually royalist, uh, na national socialist, for the most part, and, and royalist. Um, but but unless you were a Russian speaker, you you know you couldn't penetrate it. It was a huge mistake. I mean, the Ukrainians did the same thing. So so that was a huge mistake. You know, the Mensheviks and, and the Jews came over here, uh, and their language skills are far better. You know, um, the, the Russians came over here thinking that the, the regime isn't going to last very much longer, and they'll go back soon. So what's the point of getting too comfortable? So yeah, the language barrier is a big deal, and the fact that I think in the fifties. Even even up to the early 60s, the only place you could go to learn Russian was, was I think, Harvard and Georgetown. That was it. It was a total black spot. And so what ended up happening is is the Mensheviks, the, the kind of liberal revolutionaries, wrote the histories. And those are still uh, taken for granted in, in American uh, the American Academy today. And so I've dedicated my career to uh, destroying these myths. Another uh, place that was I, I say that I should be careful when I say it because uh, I have a 
family connection of someone who was sent by the CIA to Russia to learn Russian. And so that there's the other class of people who knew Russian were operators for the United States government. Well, the very fact that they had to go send them there to learn it. Right, right. Yeah. Tell you something, yeah. I was just thinking of Lee Harvey Oswald. I'm sure that's a coincidence. He spent some time there, as I understand. Yep. Um, I actually had a general question for you, Dr. Johnson. Um, do you think academia is the place to be right now for actually intellectual, finding intellectual freedom and insight today? Or do you think online or other places are better? Well, we all know the answer to that question, unfortunately. And it's been a very painful thing because that's the one place where I'm comfortable. My brain is, is geared and organized to the academic world. I still divide up the year in semesters, even all these years later. Um, I haven't taught in a couple, two years now. I taught at a community college here, then Penn State, Mount Alto a few years ago. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm pretty much blacklisted at this point. I do some online stuff on occasion. But in terms of you know, being in a brick-and-mortar university, I've been blacklisted for some time despite the fact that my student evaluations blow everyone out of the water. I'm extremely popular, um, uh, especially with females, for reasons that I have never quite figured out. Um, and, and, and when I got fired from uh, Mount St. Mary's, um, there was a rally. 180 students uh, protested that. It didn't get picked up in the press or anything, but of course it was ignored. So. Unfortunately, academia is one of the central pillars of the system, of the new world order, of, of the regime, whatever, whatever you want to call it. It's one of the most, if not the most, corrupt institution in American society. You, to get tenure, you have to be an intellectual conformist. It is completely stagnant, at least in my field. And especially if you're a young white male uh, and you're trying to get tenure, you live in fear and terror that you may say something you're considered racist or sexist. And they tend to overcompensate and, you know, become the most radical guys imaginable. Um, so to be a white male there at all, no matter what your political background, is, is extremely difficult. You have to watch everything you say. Universities um, monitor your computer use if you use the university server. And um, many of our websites are banned on most universities. It's a uh, – it's, a, it's a really – you know, and it breaks my heart because I really love the, the idea. But – Despite how good I am in a campus setting, um, I'm not allowed to to pursue that anymore. So it's 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 the worst place someone can go um, for any kind of intellectual freedom or enlightenment. Although I did it, I did it for a long time. I did it for 20 years. Um, but there's only so far you, you can push that. Again, that was in the 90s. Um, you know, uh, you know, K Max been doing it for a long time. Although I think he's retired now. Yeah, he retired. A tiny handful of us. You know, and it's it's um, it, it's it's a hard. The university is a little totalitarian state. It's everything is under tight control, and um, you know every move is being monitored. Uh, the different, you know, whether it be the gay groups or the, or the black groups, they're, they're watching everything you do. If you step out of line, they will hurt you. I've been there. Uh, my friend Dan Cleve from the University of Nebraska was driven out of that university. The basketball team threatened him. Um, uh, because he was at Charlottesville with me. So uh, it's, it's unfortunate, but you need to go there for your credentials because you need a master 
to be able to guide you through the literature and for you to know what you're talking about and know what all the words mean and the concepts mean. You can't just go to the web because you don't know what how to separate the wheat from the chaff. So, so, but it's, it's those outside of academia, those academics outside of academia, uh, like E. Michael Jones uh, and myself, who are actually doing what academics are supposed to do. Couldn't agree more. So, Dr. Johnson, uh, what are the primary dynamics going into the October Revolution, and how are they misrepresented in sort of standard education? The biggest one I know of is that the czar was some kind of um, totalitarian figure who was incompetent and sort of had it coming. Uh, that is, I think, the primary uh, historical narrative that I grew up with uh, in the United States. And that's what I grew up with. Every freshman in college, depending on your major, gets that nonsense. Uh, Neoconservatives are saying the same thing. Many conservatives are saying the same thing. Um, uh, and I was involved with the Russian Imperial Union Order starting from the late 80s. And they're the ones who finally uh, taught me the right thing. But the, but the narrative is um, Russia was a backward country. Uh, the peasantry was completely repressed. Um, they owned no land. The church r ruled everything. The or either the church ruled everything, or the church didn't rule anything. There was simply a, a a under the sum of the state. And the monarch, strangely enough, was a totalitarian, as you say, and bloody, but also weak and incompetent. They haven't figured out which one he is yet, uh, and whichever whichever one insults him the most. And um, and given public ignorance, it's really it's really hard to, to answer that. Uh, there was a feudal society, and then of course it entered World War One without any idea how to fight a modern war. Had all these supply problems allegedly, and uh, the system fell apart. And um, the liberal revolutionaries took over in the February Revolution. Um, the Leninists took over a few months later. And as someone mentioned before, the the ridiculous myth is that somehow Stalin um, put an ice pick into all that. Uh, when he took over in the in the 20s, um, that's that's the mythology. In other words, things would have gotten better had Lenin stayed alive, or at least had Kerensky and the and the provisional government has stayed around. Well, I think uh, the other narrative that's, that's, that's is the, that the other narrative is that things would have gotten a lot better if Trotsky had stayed alive. And you see this. Um, I remember I saw an interview. I think it came out about 10 years ago before Christopher Hitchens died. And he, uh, along with another author who uh, I can't remember the name of, British author who did a biography of Len of uh, Trotsky, they were both talking to Peter Robinson, who's allegedly a conservative who speaks for the Hoover Institute in Stanford, and they were sort of glorifying Trotsky as this man who could have potentially saved the Soviet Union and created some kind of free democratic state. Um, this sort of preposterous. Uh, Trotsky apologia that somehow still finds his way in the modern world. And of course, uh, the, the primary villain for both of these men would be Stalin, that Stalin, uh, you know, usurped the entire point of the revolution and was the one that put Russia on its current path somehow. Well, I'm glad. And is this not the same myth that was pushed by George Orwell in Animal Farm? Yeah, well, it, it's, it's everywhere. Um, it's, it's very few. I mean, even, you know, most communists will probably accept that point of view. It's, it's the most common myth uh, 
and you have you have conservatives who believe that kind of thing. You know, the connection between Trotsky's movement and the neocons in the 1950s is pretty substantial, as, as some of you know realize. Leo Strauss had nothing to do with that, but that's that's a separate issue. Um, one of the main purposes of my book on the Soviet Union, the Soviet experiment, is to make the claim through, of course, you know, primary source documents and their own words and, and policies that Lenin, Stalin, and Trotsky were absolutely identical in terms of what they wanted to do, how they wanted to do it, the rhetoric, the ideology, the philosophical background. They were exactly the same. They said the same things. But the big differences between them, of course, were, you know, Lenin had a more primitive system because the, because the Civil War had just ended. Stalin had more or less a, a, a vaguely stable system to work with, so he was just more efficient for that reason only and more ruthless. But they were absolutely identical in every respect, both um, you know, Trotsky you know, published the Terrorism and Revolution, where he justifies the use of not only terror but concentration camps, as does Lenin. The first concentration camps were right after the establishment of the USSR in Solovetsky in places like that. That's not a Stalinist creation. Uh, so that that's one myth that I, I've been fighting for many years now. Uh, that that somehow you know this would have been a libertarian communist society eventually, um, if if Trotsky had stayed in the country and and, and had lived longer. Uh, what people don't realize, of course, is when Stalin was was murdered. Uh, sorry, when Trotsky was murdered, um, two bank accounts were found, one in Geneva and one in New York City. He was he was a billionaire. He was worth something like $2 billion. So much of, of Russian and, and American banking money he took. He's one of the wealthiest men, uh, certainly the wealthiest men in Russia, and certainly the wealthiest man on the left. And um, Who was you know, funding him? I mean, he didn't own a business, I assume. So it was the banking interests that were trying to finance his activities? Or what is uh, the source of that? Or what is the motivation behind it, I should say? That's that's a key question. It's, it's Jacob Schiff. Okay. Um, and then, of course, connected with the Rothschilds and, and Kuhn Loeb and, and everybody else. Um, these, you know, these were also Jewish interests. There were specifically Jewish interests, uh, which is extremely important. Now, do not believe the nonsense that Stalin was anti-Jewish or that he was a nationalist. It's absolute nonsense. I've I've written on that and spoken on that until I'm blue in the face. He enforced all the anti-Semitism laws and, and everything else. Um, but the the idea was, and as, as I think most of our listeners probably know, I spend a lot of time worrying about it. The most stable currency in the world was the gold ruble of the Russian Empire. It was worth the same in 1700 as as it was in, in World War I. Um, and it was 100% convertible in gold. Which is the only one, only only currency that that you could do that. It was a purely gold-backed currency, with the state behind it. Well, there were so many offers to invade, and for for the Rothschilds to set up a bank, um, as I'd done elsewhere, and the monarchy had been very resolute in saying it's not going to happen. 
Yeah, until uh, 1911 or whenever the Federal Reserve was created in the United States, uh, the U.S. dollar actually held its value fairly consistently. It obviously went up and down, but the amount of inflation was somewhat negligible over a long course of time because it was fixed to the value of gold. It was redeemable in gold, in other words. Uh, and uh, ever since the Federal Reserve, I mean, it's lost about 98% of its value. And so that central banking scheme is, is one that has definitely uh, wrecked a lot of havoc uh, in this country and elsewhere. You're absolutely right. And and as far as, yeah, up until the Federal Reserve, the U.S. dollar, if you even it all out, um, was remarkably stable. Uh, the, the currency in the Byzantine Empire was so stable that it was used as far away as China as legal tender. It was used all over the planet as legal tender. And the Vikings used it. Um, this is this is the, the nature of the, of the so-called Eastern Roman Empire, or the, the side of the Roman Empire that actually survived. And, you know, Rome was the um, legitimizing, secular legitimizing uh, force of the state until, of course, Peter the Great. Uh, so, so the bankers, the religious interests, of course, the Jewish interests, uh, the money issue, their control over the press, which is clear, um, and um, the manipulation, the invention of things like the, the pogroms, which are mostly mythology. Um, some of you probably know that the first use to, of, of the six million figure was um, in the late 19th century. It pro it's probably before then, but I know of. The New York Times mentioned six million deaths, six million Jews in, um, in Tsarist Russia. It was used well, again after World War I. Uh, it was used in the Jewish Forward, the Pittsburgh Jewish Press. Uh, so so they, were, they were, you know, they, they loathed the Russian Empire. Yeah, there's a long history of obviously inflated numbers for i mean I, and i don't know when this really starts but if you ever look into the commonly accepted history of especially medieval eastern european pogroms um the evidence for them is even the just the baseline evidence that they happened is sort of shaky because it always seems to come from internal yiddish sources there's never any sort of state sources um from any of these fiefdoms in eastern europe at the time but it's always these insane numbers that don't make any sense. You know, hundreds of thousands allegedly killed. It, uh, I don't know if there was any evidence that there were even 100,000 um, speakers of Yiddish in all of Eastern Europe in the, mid in the medieval era. So, you know, this, this history of inflating numbers definitely has gone on for a long time. And I think, you know, historians that I've read will, will always say that numbers – Figures have historically always been inflated from all kinds of conflicts all over the world. Everyone, you know, inflate everyone from their own point of view will inflate their own uh, their own losses or their own victories. Um, the Romans did this. The Mongols did this repeatedly. Um, Chinese sources are in notoriously unreliable for the ancient world. Uh, but this seems to be one era that can't necessarily be criticized as you know. How bad were these alleged pogroms, and how often did they actually happen? And if they did happen, what exactly caused them? Um, and this is kind of a good, I think, turning point for uh, um, Solzhenitsyn's book, 200 Years Together, because that seems to be part of his thesis, that this relationship had been so sour for so long that uh, you know, Russians and Eastern Europeans had good reason to dislike the, the Pale of Settlement and the Jews that lived there. Well, the Khazar Empire, 
and it is true that is the origin of of most European Jews today um, was one of the most feared and violent institutions uh, of the early Middle Ages. They existed solely by charging tolls on shipping in the Dnieper and the Volga and slavery. These are the ones who sent the, the slave raiders into into um, into uh, southern Russia and used the Turks as their as their uh, bodyguards. Um, and then the, the constant uh, keep keep in mind that 17th century, many years later, 85% of the globe's Jewish population lived in Eastern Europe. They lived within the Polish Empire and were a very, very privileged group of people because the so-called nobility there were totally dependent on, on Jewish financiers to function. And they owned a tremendous amount of land and so much of the Ukrainian revolution in 1648, etc. Uh, all comes from the vehement denunciations of, of the Kahal system, the Jewish power, the Talmudic power that existed at the time. Even mainstream historians will admit this, that their behavior was, was absolutely awful. Um, I have several articles, one in the Barnes Review, a few, few floating around elsewhere, where uh, the Emperor Paul I in, in Russia and Alexander I sent fact-finding missions to the newly uh, taken, you know, once the Polish Empire fell apart, um, the, the very late 18th century, uh, of course, Russia now has a whole lot of Jews that it never had before, and parts of Poland and, and Romania, which now is part of the Russian Empire for the very first time. And um, they were they weren't necessarily against them. They they just needed to know what what all the problems were. Why why they hated so much? Why is it? And they sent um, the poet Derjavin, who was relatively philo-Semitic at the time, but he wasn't for long. And he came back with a report. Um, they tr they tried to kill him for it. Um, where he explains in depth why they're so hated. Because the Tsars, and one of the reasons that the pogrom stuff in the, in the late 19th, early 20th century is mythology, is, is that the western part of the Russian Empire was the commercial hub. These cities were absolutely essential to the Russian economy. They could not have rioting there. They could not have these divisions there. Um, but the exact same accusations and, and, and evidence from the from whether the Cossack rebellions against them, the Polish rebellions against them, um, this was their this was their uh, fief was in Eastern Europe. They were going to rebuild Kazaria in um, using the Polish Empire. And one of the reasons I know this is not really what we're supposed to talk about, but the key issue is people always ask why do they go so far? They're treated well by a host population but they can't just be happy with that. They have to push and push and push and push and show contempt for the whole, and the reason for that is that once they start dominating and doing well, they begin to believe that the Messiah is coming, which of course is Antichrist. They believe the Messiah is coming. So things are gonna be ending soon. They're gonna be ruling over the planet. Um, um, now the Messiah turned out to be you know, the Communist Party. You know, there are very few Jews are religious, and they're mostly even the Hasidics. These are mostly, you know, uh, materialists. But, but still, in one form or another, they thought that the um, the Messiah is going to come. So they had no reason to limit themselves. No reason to um, to behave themselves. They think they're going to be they're going to be rescued at, at any time. 
as he Michael Jones once said, one of my favorite lines, you know, instead of the, the Messiah, they got Kimonitsky, you know, the head of the Cossack forces in 1648 that wiped them out. And, um, and they, were, they were extremely obnoxious. Uh, Jewish behavior in, in the 17th century Ukraine, Poland, where almost all of them lived, um, poisoned relations with Russia and uh, that part of the world forever. Don't forget, it's one part of the world where you can, on a daily basis, in public, condemn the Jews, you know, for whatever reason, and it's mainstream. It's perfectly okay. Unlike here, where you can lose your job. There, it's to be expected. And this is the reason so- why. <clears throat> Do messianic delusions help to account for the brutality that then comes to take place in the 20th century? I think it's an important factor. Absolutely. You know, because you know, how many times do you hear that? You know, why they're doing so well? You know, they rule, they dominate. No one's no one's messing with them. Why do they hate the whole society? You know, why are they doing everything they can to to, to corrode it? it Does not make that makes no sense? I mean, no other. Uh, wealthy minority. I mean, the, the Arabs never did that. The Armenians never did that. And that's exactly the reason why. Yeah, it, it, it's a delusion, and it always ends up with them in trouble. So to be specific, so, uh, some of the irritating behaviors that were causing some of the animosity towards the Jewish population included uh, the infamous usury. Uh, there was the trading and somewhat promotion of alcohol, it would seem, uh, and actually production and promotion and, uh, and distribution of alcohol. Uh, what else were they doing that was, that was so obnoxious? I mean, on a personal level, I can relate to some of the Jewish personality in terms of the pushiness and the aggressiveness, but what were their specific crimes? Because you are among very few, I would say, in the Anglosphere who actually understands the Russian language. So what what have you seen and, and read and heard from primary sources that could tell us specifically what was going on back then, Dr. Johnson? Yeah, and that's, that's, that's really the, the center of all this. The accusations are surprisingly the same no matter where you go. And all the places they've been kicked out of, the list of reasons are shockingly similar. As you said, uh, usury, charging interest, the fact that their network can get money cheaper than more cheaply than any any other person they could undercut their competition because they're a tightly knit group with international connections that doesn't charge interest with each other but they do the outside and that gives them a huge advantage and no one knows what they're saying especially back then uh, that's a huge part of it um white slavery was always one of these accusations um blood libel as we all know it happens to be true uh, I didn't. I wasn't interested in this too much until maybe maybe five years ago. Um, Ariel Toaf, the Jewish professor at um, Tel Aviv University, came out and said it's true. They have sacrificed uh, Gentile babies um, uh, for for various religious reasons. I mean, these these are extreme Hasidic sects. It's not like like my, my dentist up the street. I mean, it's, you know, these are extreme sects. But but it is true. That comes up again and again and again. The exact same accusation. No matter what part of the world you're, you're living in, um, some form of pornography, even in the more primitive, uh, you know, methods that they used back then, you know, owning brothels. You mentioned the alcohol, using alcohol to to uh, make people more amenable to what they want during, uh, which is something that actually the the, the Zavin mentioned in his report to to the czar. Um, 
is that getting peasants drunk and, and um, having them sign things was that's a common tactic. Uh, and the fact they simply didn't they didn't care. They were such radical separatists, and they they seem to have no conscience. This comes up over and over and over again, and that they're able to hold the debt using compound interest of Christian people to the point where they own a huge amount of property. And it's not through honest means. That's that's the normal list of things. I'm sure there's regional differences, but that's the core wherever you go. And is it basically because the nob- noblemen or the, the the people who are in charge are basically making money uh, or being bribed directly with the, the Jews that they allow this to continue? Because obviously if you're a a ruler that cares about his people, he's not going to permit this. But it seems to continue. It seems to continue to this day. I mean, if you look at our leadership in the United States with APAC and uh, how beholden they are to that lobby, uh, it's it's pretty disgusting and deplorable behavior. But it seems to continue. And so, wh- why are they so successful? And why do the leaders not uh, get a firmer grip on this stuff? You know, in the Polish case, and this is extremely important for what we're talking about, the nobility, which is always very very powerful, and the monarch usually wasn't. We're always at war with the crown. Now, this is the case everywhere, but not nearly as bad as in as in Poland. Poland wasn't a monarchy really at any point. It was a it was an oligarchic state. Um, building up an economy in the cities of actual poles, in normal trade and, and agriculture, like you would see in, in parts of England, um, uh, was out of the question because then the monarch could take advantage of that. Um, so. They brought in – I mean these Jews were invited in, and this goes back to the 13th century. It, it, it's it, even earlier than that. Uh, there are several academic works on this I could, I could send you, um, that they invited them in to serve as a group of people who were excellent businessmen, who had a great source of cheap credit, and they would be beholden to the local strongmen and not the crown. Um, so, you know – because they're able to get money more cheaply than anybody else, because their network was better, more efficient, um, more ruthless than anybody else, they were able to undercut everybody, and that's what it comes down to. In the U.S., of course, you know the U.S. has no money; it's it's so badly indebted, um, which means that the major banks are far more powerful than the state. You know, the banks make make sure the government can function from day to day. They're more powerful than government. Government is, is a secondary force compared to compared to them, and that's why they get bailed out and they can do as they please. So ultimately, it's it's um, an economy that puts that puts money and cash first, and whoever controls liquidity uh, and the cheapest possible rate of interest is going to win. And that's really hard to resist. It's really hard to fight back when you could get a better interest rate than you know the normal guy up the street. I think one case where the government kind of did what you're talking about, Adam, would be uh, (laughs) post-Muslim Spain was not kind at all to Jews. And that's how a lot of them actually wound up in places like Eastern Europe, right? where both the king and or the royalty and the nobility of Spain, which was always very decentralized, especially at that time, sort of banded together because they had a shared disdain for uh, for this permanent uh, Sephardic problem. Uh, and of course, 
a lot of that stemmed from the fact that uh, Spaniard knights had been fighting Jewish contingents that were members of uh, the Moorish forces. They were uh, inflicting military casualties on Christian Spaniards for 700 years. So they were very acutely aware of this problem. And, you know, after they had sort of succeeded in taking Spain back, they had no interest in allowing for the, like, the preservation of Spanish Jewish culture or whatever. They very quickly got rid of them. And that was the story of the Inquisition, which Spain still receives flack for to this day. It's still seen as this horrible st- stain on the legacy of, of, uh, of Spain that they would commit this act without any context as to why uh, why this happened. Of course. But uh, Dr. Johnson, have you been able to read Solzhenitsyn's book? Uh, I, the translations that have come out in English have been sort of spotty and hard to find. Yeah, it was pretty funny because the one I was looking at, it kept referring to the Jews as tax farmers. And I don't know if that was just a loss in translation-ism, but it, was, uh, it reminded me of... Uh, one of the things that uh, Stefan Molyneux calls uh, governments today. but uh, So I'm imagining the actual uh, Russian version is probably a little bit more uh, succinct and clear to uh, Hans' question. I, I read it uh, when it first came out in, in Russian, um, or at least when it was first available. And uh, to this day, I don't think there's a full English translation that I'm aware of. I'm, I'm not secure enough in that to do one myself. I don't think I'm that good. I'm good enough, um, but for my my purposes, but not for something like that. Uh, I'd be too worried about it, especially for a guy like him. There's a guy who's more competent than me in that respect. Um, the tax farming idea is, is right. Um, the Romans used that phrase. Uh, there's different there's different terms for it. It just refers to the fact. And again, this is all quite relevant. What we're talking about here: a tax farmer is someone who gets a monopoly to this is actually another one of the, the complaints that, that they get. They, they were used as, as these tax farmers, uh, in a sense. They, w- they would get the monopoly, uh, patent from the state to collect taxes, and they were given a quota, what the government needed. Anything over and above that they can secure was theirs. So that was their profit. So they had to lie. They had to misrepresent the government's position for them to get any kind of profit out of it. And that's what the so-called Romans had to worry about this stuff. And it was so easy because they were so good at it. You know, it was so easy to say, oh, let, let them do it. You know we're going to get it. We're going to get our, our share. And But they had to lie and cheat in order to get their profit from it. So they had to yeah. – and back then, it was not that hard to do uh, the way documents were. You couldn't go online for things, you know. Was, um, and and actually, that's where the nobility failed the people so, so much. The structure of, of politics in Europe seems to be – that there's only one real division, and that's between a monarchy and oligarchy. Uh, the monarchy could be a military government or just a strong centralized system like you have Putin in Russia. And oligarchy is pretty much pretty much anywhere else. The rule of, of, of oligarchy people with money, whether they have an aristocratic title or not, they are constantly at war with each other. They are never allies. Um, and Russia came closest to building this, thanks to Ivan the Terrible. Uh, but that's that's the central issue. In most places, they fail to get a hold of their um, their nobility. And using the Jews in this respect was one great reason why. Uh, I guess Russia came the closest. Uh, the Byzantine Empire came fairly close 
to to creating a uh, so I mean the, you know, the the monarchy is based on the common good, oligarchy is based on the personal good, the individual good, no sense of the collective. That's a very very general division, but that seems to be it. And you see it in various um, guises in every European system. Today, of course, in the West, it's pure oligarchy. I doubt we'll be seeing a Pivar and Volokhansky translation of 200 years together either. Well, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't you know, I, I, I've heard that it exists somewhere, not that specifically, but um, I, I, I've heard that there is one, but I can't find it. I've been hearing this, by the way, since I was at the Barnes Review. So um, I know there's the one that keeps showing up is the one I see it in PDF. But it's only like maybe a quarter of the of the book. And it's excellent. I use it all the time, but but that's only a piece of it. So how did the the Western uh, media and academia respond to its release? Because Solzhenitsyn is still uh, treated, is uh, uh, still held in esteem to a certain point by the academy, or at least uh, his his you know primary books are are published by major publishing houses, and uh, I suppose he's still taught. But of course, this aspect of his work is not taught. Since you read it when it came out, what was the reaction? So was it just something that was hoped to be brushed under the rug and not talked about? Yeah, there was very little of it in English for a long time. So very few people were talking about it. You would see it, remember a, a few brief reviews in leftist publications, um, and the Jewish Forward, places like that. But yeah, the attempt was to repress it. Solzhenitsyn... Um, was very much distrusted by the system, especially after the Harvard speech. Um, Gerald Ford refused to meet with him because he didn't want to piss off uh, Brezhnev and, and harm the detente uh, balance. Um, he was seen as an anti-Semite. He was seen as a monarchist. And you know, people like Joseph Brodsky were brought over, used as kind of a liberal substitute for Solzhenitsyn. Um, because he won the Nobel Prize, uh, because of you know the, the the objective quality of of the of the archipelago and a few other books like that, he's always going to be held in high esteem. But going through the academic work on him, he's excoriated over and over and over and over again. And it's really only for those reasons. And it's really only conservative presses that write on him uh, in any kind of sympathetic way. The only other the only other side to this. Is if they deal with things like in, in you know any of his other other major novels in a purely academic literary way, without really talking about politics, because you can't you can't read the archipelago and 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 not see that the Jews are are heavily involved in this. He's not kidding around with this. Um, Two hundred years together was a huge blow to the system, and making sure that no one could read it um, was an essential part of it. So it, it was ignored for the most part. I guarantee you there's there's academics and historians out there who have no idea that it exists. So I know this is a is a large and difficult question, but if you would do your best to tackle it, Dr. Johnson, how was it that the Bolsheviks were able to overthrow the Russian state? Well, um, when my the third Rome came out, I wrestled with this idea. I wrestled with it all throughout grad school. It was something that tormented me. Because um, it doesn't make any sense. Russia was doing very well economically. Even during the war, it was doing very well. Um, Germany and Russia were the two most uh, powerful economies. 
Um, yeah, I once, I once heard a statistic that Russia was producing half of, or something like that, of, Euro of Europe's wheat, and they were, in terms of just sheer output, comparable to the Great Plains of the United States. Uh, and yeah, right that, after the revolution, it all fell apart. Yeah, they were never able to get to that level again. Yeah, that was from me. I, I'm the one. I read that in Russian, and I popularized it. Uh, I, that's been spread everywhere. It's true. They fed the planet. Um, and the peasantry on the land. 95%, at least 95% of the landlords were actually peasants, either in a commune or as individuals. Um, the system would worked. You had local democracy at a tremendous, you know, in the Zemspa county system, the commune system was purely democratic. Um, taxes were very low. The cost of living was extremely low. Uh, and when, of course, they discovered oil, in the south of the country, that's it. The British went nuts. And that's when there was, a, you know, and so the concept was eventually how can we can't, we can't, to the, from the London's point of view, we can't take on both Berlin and Russia at the same time. We need to get them to fight each other. Uh, how do we do that? And it was diabolical, but using the situation in the Balkans, especially with Austria, they got Russia and Germany who were very close and allies in every other respect to fight each other and that's the cause for the breakdown of the system without world war one there is no discussion about a bolshevik revolution um the bolsheviks had a ridiculous amount of money um a huge their, their propaganda machine was first rate the the banks and I have I go into this in, in great detail. There's places all over the on, on, online, scholarly and otherwise. I go into this. There's no denying it anymore. Uh, the major banks were pouring cash into their system because Bolsheviks did demand the full centralization of all credit in one place. Um, and uh, which, of course, is the banker's dream, which the monarchy would never do with any foreign any foreign control. Uh, so ultimately it comes down to divisions among the white forces. The fact that the white armies never had any particular um, a political agenda. Very few of them were actually monarchists, so the monarchy was very popular. Um, the tight control of the media. I mean, the media was relatively liberal in Russia, even under Tsar Nicholas. Um, and the Jews were, were in, in, in control of it, especially in St. Petersburg using Rasputin to attack the royal family, which they can never do directly. Um, the, um, the fact that the church generally were, were not property owners uh, in, in Russia, unlike, unlike other places. It was under the, the synodal system, so the state had a, had a certain, certain control over it, financially speaking anyway. Um, they, they, were, they didn't own huge estates like they did at, at other times. Um, you know, the white armies only said we're going to we're going to call a constituent assembly and we'll get this once we win. But the communists went in there with a very simple, basic, easy to understand program. They were also very disciplined. They were ruthless. They had no conscience. They were willing to use any method whatsoever to to, to get what they wanted. And Trotsky, of course, was the head of the Red Army and the head of the uh, Petrograd Soviet. Um, and with a tremendous amount of money. Uh, they were able to to organize, and and you know, they hired mercenaries, 
not to mention the fact that they had Germany on their side so long as World War I was continuing. Um, the White Army was divided. Um, a, ideological, there really wasn't, they never had an agenda. And, um, and they were all over. You had anarchists there, you had, you had monarchists there, you had liberals there, you had, you know, technically the white armies were representatives of the Kerensky. They were representatives of the, of the provisional government, February Revolution. Uh, there were very few that are actually specifically monarchist uh, armies there. So they made no reference, not to, oh, not to mention the fact that they, they refused to um, grant any concessions to the nations, in places like Ukraine or the Baltics. They said one Russia indivisible, and that's it. No, no, under, no real understanding um, of the sensitivity there. They were military men, not politicians. Um, and the press spread the idea that they were anti-Semites, of course, because any anti-communist was automatically an anti-Semite at the time. And also don't forget, it's very important to remember that no one really knew what a Bolshevik was during the Russian Civil War. Very few American politicians had any clue what a Bolshevik was. I mean, you should hear or read the American press at the time. It's laughable. They don't know what the hell's going on there. Um, the New York Times was calling the, the Cossacks Apaches, Apache Indians, because of the top knot that came out of the top of their head. They didn't know what the hell to call them. They didn't know anything. They had no idea what the Bolshevik agenda was. They claimed to private property, and, and they needed a strong state that was going to be anti-German to control the German Empire. So put all these together, and the whites, unfortunately, while they had lots of advantages, um, uh, they were going to lose. And I should add to that that the Americans, the American press that did go there were sympathizers, such as people like John Reed, and then later Walter Durante and uh, George Kennan. Let's make something very clear, and I have I've written on this since I was 25 years old. Um, the Western powers, they had the the Entente, Great Britain, France, the U.S. didn't give a bullet or a penny or a kopeck to the white forces. Um, and and Kornilov's and um, um, Denikin's own own writings and diaries, they say we got the money. No one wants to sell us anything. They're so vehemently opposed, opposed to us. So there was an ideological bias against the white forces because somehow people got the idea that, that whites were monarchists and they were going to restore the czar and slaughter Jews for some reason. And so the propaganda war was one um, – the propaganda war may even be the number one thing. They controlled – communists and the left, the media controlled information. Remember – Trotsky was working for the for the for the Post in 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 New York. Karl Marx was working for the for the major presses in Germany. These guys already had jobs in the American press. And uh, George, George Kennan was working uh, for. He was backed by Jacob Schiff. Yeah, and, and again, you know, the average American didn't know anything what was going on over there. Didn't know anything about the banking cartels, um, and they they believed what they were told. So, and, what interests? were the American forces sent to secure and, and the, the American forces and the, the Red Cross mission, et cetera, what, what interests were they there to protect? Obviously the interest was not to defeat Bolshevism. They could have done that in, in 10 minutes. You know, the British could have crushed the Petrograd Soviet in, 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 you know, a few hours, but not only did they not do it, they were told not to do it. Um, 
the main interest, to be simple about it, the main interest was to build a centralized, secular um, state, no monarch, nothing like this, to control German expansion. Uh, that was a British point of view, so that was the American point of view. Um, the monarchy could never come back in, in the eyes of the West because they, they, they didn't like bankers. They didn't like Jews. They, they, were, they were feudal, you know, whatever, whatever names they were called. And they were nationalists, which, of course, is the worst thing you could be uh, if you kind of want one empire. And the only time Wilson would ever condemn the Bolsheviks is if they acted like monarchs. Only the czar would do something like this, they would, they would say. You know, so that was the, the bad guy. And uh, people like Wilson, who thought was a political scientist, I don't even think they – he was unaware of the different sides and how complicated it really was. Not to mention the fact that the Russian market is massive. Population going through the roof before the war. You have oil uh, discovered. You have you have gold everywhere. You know it's and it was just just beginning to be discovered. All the minerals and and, and the population was was exploding. This was a huge market. The British had to be in the ground floor of, and so long as the monarch was there, that wasn't going to be the case. And Russia was going to be the number one uh, rival to the to British expansionism, not just in, in Europe but in Asia. So that's really the main interest here. It's ideological as well as financial. Why were the British not able to really capitalize on uh, this sort of this plot? You know, it, the Soviet Union ends up becoming sort of a basket case that needs constant American and British support and seems to pose difficulties in actually attaining a lot of those raw resources. Was the goal to just cause disruption or was the it, was the initial goal to get those resources under their control, but it failed because the, the disruption was too great and they sort of unleashed people that they didn't fully understand. Yeah, there was going to be distrust between Western elites and and whether it be Russians or Soviets or anybody else, no matter what happened. Any empire that got that large, it didn't make any difference what ideology it was based on, was going to piss someone off in the West especially when China fell in, in 1949. Uh, that was the fear. There was this distrust of Russians. Now, of course, Russia and the Soviet Union have very little in common. Lenin declared war on the Russian ethnicity. Uh, the Russian nation was, was his enemy. He, he even said, you know, Bolshevism has conquered Russia, was one of his, his slogans. It's a concept of, of, of conquest here. Um, Western capital, as you know, built up the USSR. Um, but the profits from this um, only went so far as, and of course, out of Hitler threw a monkey wrench in, into all of it. The West helped them rebuild. But very quickly, you know, the system became so heavily based on heavy industry, didn't make the jump to light or consumer uh, industry, like consumer electronics and things like that in the 60s. They never made that jump because of the nature of the system um, and depreciation really took over very quickly. And as you know, the Jews jumped ship probably in, in the early 70s. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, Soviet patriotism became this anti-Jewish anti idea uh, by the 80s. Very anti-Zionist, which you know, Putin has um, um, uh, inherited. So it, it's definitely a complicated thing. I think I think uh, Western companies did make a big profit there. Um, there was never any sanctions on the USSR. Uh, trade and whatever you wanted, 
was perfectly okay. Um, except, you know, starting in the late 70s. Uh, the, uh, the Afghanistan invasion was the very first time. And even that had all kinds of exceptions to it. Ronald Reagan used to complain, saying, you know, I, I would love to, you know, they're, they're sending computer equipment. They're sending things that could be used in missile systems. And I can't stop it. I can't tell these people who to, who to trade with. You know, there's sanctions on a nationalist like Putin. There's sanctions on, on Francisco Franco after, after World War II. On the USSR, there's nothing of the kind. Um, so I think the West continued to profit from it until Hitler uh, destroyed it for a while. And then very quickly after the war, it, um, uh, a mismanagement under Khrushchev, the Virgin Lands disaster, the, then the agriculture could never, they could never get it right. The collective farming system was so bad. And, you know, the one thing, the, the, the gulag system, um, is something they could never, you know, they could never get around that. It was never considered as bad as Hitler's system, even though it was far worse. Um, and, and so there, there are certain things they just couldn't get around. So but that, that's, that's the reason. You know, they profited in the beginning. Hitler destroyed it. Um, after Khrushchev, it just, it just got too lumbering and too big, and, 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 and the depreciation took over. So – uh, am I correct in the way I look at it? It seems that Europeans, I mean, I think the events of the mid 20th century demonstrate this. Europeans seem to have a much better understanding of what was happening in the East than Americans. Uh, why do you think this is? Is it just a geographical proximity or is it something about the ideological nature of the American state that made Americans more amenable to Bolshevik propaganda than Europeans? Well, you know, Bolshevik propaganda came in, in different forms. I always like to say the word Menshevik propaganda. It was the it was the a provisional government. That was the ideology, the kind of moderate socialist that that took over. Uh, and Leninism was considered an outgrowth of that. And of course, like you said, Stalin, um, according to them, changed everything. There's a very specific reason for that. It's not true, but but they had a, a reason for doing that. The difference between Americans and Europeans, it is geographic proximity. You know, um, you know, you have, um, these countries are, are you know, Germany almost almost borders it, borders Poland, and and there's no getting out of it. They have a far greater historical sense. They have a long uh, history of interaction. Uh, Americans really don't. Americans are terrible historians. They have a terrible historical sense, and because um, the U.S. isn't really a historical nation, it's a modern nation. It, it, no, there's no medieval history, so to speak. So that's it, it's definitely it's definitely proximity, and ideology is also very important. You don't have the in places like France and Germany. You don't have the the, the individualist, uh, egocentric fanaticism like you would have in in, in the U.S. Do, do you, you see similarities between the liberal internationalism of Woodrow Wilson and Bolshevism from an ideological perspective? Oh yeah, of course. You know that kind of bourgeois liberalism, um, and Leninism, you know, have a, a tremendous amount in common. You know, they're both they're both materialistic. They're both secular. They both believe uh, history moves in a straight line. Everything's you know, developing towards a, a final utopia. Um, that um, science will answer every question. That our happiness will be found in, found in production. This is also an Eaton too. Uh, production and technology will solve these problems. That this is where we're going to find our our satisfaction ultimately. The nation is passe. Uh, even the family is passe. Um, you know, the, those two systems have a lot in common. How how they ran the, the state is a different story. 
But in their ideological foundations, they're very, very similar. Solzhenitsyn said that at Harvard. And that's one of the things that pissed off the system such that they never quite forgave him for that. Uh, you mentioned World War II uh, uh, just a moment ago. Uh, we did a fairly extensive show on the Suvorov thesis. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I'm sure you know of Viktor Suvorov. Yeah. He's a pretty, uh, it's a pseudonym actually, but it's a, he's a fairly well-known uh, Russian author, historian about uh, the Soviet military in particular. And his contention was that the uh, Operation Barbarossa, where the, the Germans invaded the Soviet Union uh, in uh, World War II, was in effect a preemptive attack uh, because the evidence uh, would indicate to him that the Stalinist government was planning an invasion of the rest of Europe. Um, now, since you do read Russian, uh, and one of the questions that came up during that show was, where is the documentation in the Soviet archives, if any? And it doesn't mean that because it doesn't exist, it, it wasn't something that was being planned. It just seems less likely if there's no documentation. But is there any documentary evidence to support the assertion that Stalin was going to invade uh, the rest of Europe at some point, uh, and what Hitler was trying to do was stop that? Yeah. The thesis, uh, the so-called icebreaker thesis, is, um, is absolutely correct. Uh, the book that contains all of the document documentation is by Joachim Hoffman. It's called Stalin's War of Extermination. That's the book. Um, actually, I signed that in class one time too. Um, that's nothing but essentially, you know, the use of of that documentation, everything down to the maps that soldiers were issued. Um, you know, even the roots of the, every, everything they had laid out. Uh, there's no question. There can't be any historical question anymore. That's exactly true. Joachim Hoffman's book has all the primary documentation. I'm looking at, I'm looking at the book right now. But um, I did something. I translated stuff from um, Major General Peter Grigorenko, who was the highest-ranking um, dissident from the Soviet Union. One of the reasons he became a dissident is because he discovered the icebreaker thesis is true. He criticized Stalin. He was in World War II. He became a major general. He was one of the joint – their version of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You can't get any higher than him. And he said, here's the reason that Hitler was so successful when he invaded. Because you had three million Russian men with no barracks and no obvious purpose on the border of Central Europe. What the hell are they doing then? What possible reason could they have for being there? There was no barracks. They had no – nothing – you know, and this is what got him ultimately sent to a mental institution. And he, um, he – they transferred him. He became the Pacific commander for a while. They sent him to an institution. They put him up full of drugs. And so one of the supreme commanders of the Russian uh, army was selling vegetables on the side of the road. Um, this was, I guess, in, in, in the 50s, um, early 60s. And eventually, the same, roughly the same time they dumped Solzhenitsyn off, they dumped Gregorenko off uh, in the U.S. They didn't kill him given the time period. They, they just exiled him. And his criticism of Stalin is based on the icebreaker thesis. Now, he doesn't even come out and say that that's what they were there for. He says, what the hell? He just asked the question, what were they there for? Soviet military doctrine has no defensive concept. It doesn't exist. Ideologically speaking, everything is offensive. There is no such concept as 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 defensive. 
Any so-called defense is nothing more than uh, modified offense. So if you have three, a minimum of three million men with nowhere to keep them, no barracks, no nothing, no, no project, no, no building, no nothing like that, on the border of Central Europe, exactly at the time when Hitler invades, well, you know, there's, there are very few other places to go. You have to conclude that this is an invasion force. Um, and he was banking on the fact that the British probably wouldn't have fought back. The British would have made a deal with them, as would the French. So the truth remains, therefore, that Hitler is the only reason that Stalin didn't take over Europe or most of Europe. He is the only reason that Stalin, uh, that the fangs were kind of pulled out of the out of the wolf's mouth, mouth, so to speak. Um, and the damage he could have done. Of course, they gave him Eastern Europe anyway, and after the war. Which is yeah, I, was, I was about to add, it, it follows from that, that the Americans are the reason that they took half of the uh, took half of Europe. <laughs> the war allegedly was supposed to have started in 1939 because Hitler invaded Poland. Well, Stalin invaded Poland on the same day. And no one said a word. I made that, Dr. Johnson, I made that exact point in a college classroom. And I was just met with absolute scorn from both the professor as well as the entire class. Did he even know about it? I, I I think so. I think he just the, the implications of it meant nothing to him, and it was just something you weren't supposed to point out. I this is I, it. This is it. That's why <laughs> if they won't like you, and they don't know why they don't like you. You're not saying anything. <laughs> You're not supposed to mention that. I've been there a hundred times. They can't make any sense. You know, the, the implications are such that they just ignore it or minimize it or give you a dirty look and hopes that you'll just shut up. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. I, I'd like to also add on this subject, why is it that after all this hindsight, because once the Cold War dialectic starts up and we now, and now you can push, uh, you, you can now talk about the atrocities committed in the USSR uh, and people now know, you know, communism bad, millions dead, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, why is it that that has not put a single dent in the mythology of the good war itself with the United States fighting on behalf of the USSR. You know how many fights I've gotten into with World War II veterans? We're kind of elderly now. Or yep, exactly. um, there's support. are with the elderly, Dr. Johnson. I don't, I don't give a damn, you know. <laughs> Thanks for your service. <laughs> they fought on the wrong side. I'm gonna, yeah. I've said that. Yeah, you, <laughs> my, father, my father lost his left hand in Korea. He lost part of his left rib cage in Korea uh, with the 1st Marine Division. He was there because of you guys. Stalin wouldn't have had that, you know, so he would have taken the entire, most of the planet. Every Vietnam vet, every Korean vet, everyone who fought in, in the Cold War wars from Nicaragua on are there because Hitler lost the war. Um, and it's the same thing with the implications. These guys will talk about how evil Hitler was. And when you tell them, these are decent people otherwise, but they have this blank spot in their world. And you say, but wait a minute, you were on Stalin's side, and you allowed him to create the gulag system from East Germany to North Korea, and all the way down to China. How was that an improvement? And you get the same response as the professor did in, in, in that class when he mentioned the Soviet invasion of Poland. Yeah. Um, it, but their all their ego is wrapped up in it. I mean, you just can't separate the the average American from the notion that he's the hero of the 20th century. That that's it. I mean, that's the sort of progressive liberal agenda or whatever you want to call it. It's become the new world order effectively. But the American 
uh, astonishingly still views himself as this crusader for justice. And I think if you try, if you rob him of that, it removes a lot of his self-esteem. And I think that's why you get that, that backlash. I've been doing this for a long time now, and I'm, um, I, I've worried about the psychology quite a bit. And these are otherwise intelligent people. When 9-11 happened, um, I wrote the very first article uh, questioning the 9-11 narrative. I wrote it on the very same day. I was there. And I Did said, you see the planes? That's the real debate right now. Well, I, was, I wasn't very – I was right, right by D.C. There was no plane there. Yeah. Right. Um, no, what, what I asked was – I remember, and I said this to John Tiffany at the time, when the last plane hit in New York – about 15 minutes later, the announcers in every station said, this is Osama bin Laden's work. I said, how could they know this? Yeah, no kidding. They never mentioned anybody else. No other group. You know, um, the man was sick in, in Pakistan at the time. He had severe kidney problems. He died at the end of the, in, in the, according to the New York Times, he died in 2001, the end of 2001. They froze all his accounts after his attack on the USS Cole. How could he have done this? And why was no one else mentioned? And he, all, the, all these kind of groups in the world, the one group that refused to take responsibility was his. And the Taliban, who had nothing to do with any of this, condemned it because too many innocent people were killed. Now, I could go through this, with, and no one could deny that. I mean, I, I watched it on, on numerous stations, and I remember talking about it. That very day, I was talking about it with people, friends of mine, people who I know and respect. And after a while... They have to, of course, they agreed with me. What are they going to say? No, they didn't say that. So, but they'll agree with me. They say, oh, yes, it's true. It's very odd. I never thought of that before. But then 24 hours later, I'll hear them saying the same old crap to someone else, as if they never talked to me. And the concept, the psychological concept is, is whether it be 9-11 or World War II, you think of the average American, which is, I know, hard for any of us, um, who's doing okay, middle class, he has a family working for a corporation, you know, kind of neocon maybe. He collects Civil War books, you know. Um, um, and he knows what would happen if he accepted our point of view. He knows what would happen to his social life. He, what, what would happen to his marriage? Because once you find this stuff out and believe it, you just can't shut up about it. And he knows that he's now going to become slowly but surely a pariah. He may lose his job. He may lose everything. He may lose his marriage. He may lose his kids. That has far more to do with keeping people on the plantation than any kind of in intellectual issue. And after a few beers, there's a lot of guys who will agree with me on this. Need, need a few beers to get them to, to do it. But I've been doing this for a long time. This is exactly what they say. You know, um, I thought professors say – uh, again, after a few beers, you know what? I have a good gig here. There's nothing I can do about it. I can't change anything. You know, I'm not going to mess this up. You know, look at all the hot undergraduates I see every day. I'm not messing this up. I don't have to do any work. I get eighty, hundred thousand a year. With, with you know, I'm not messing this up. To do what? To end up being like you? No one wants to be like me. So, so you know, it's really. It's, what do you say to them? Except, well, this is what human life is. You're supposed to be reasonable and rational. You'd be a very good slave. But, you know, other than that, what are you supposed to say? I guess we don't have an and answer. That's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. 
you know, again, I, I've spoken to so many people all around the political spectrum, all over this country, conversation after conversation, you know, constantly. Um, and it's the same thing. Ultimately, you know, they can't deny this. I don't care what, what issue you're talking about, 9-11, the, the Osama bin Laden, any of these issues. I don't care what issue, you know, they know that we know, or even JFK, for that matter, who killed him. But the implications are such that if they began talking like this, they're, they're in a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. And it's just not worth it to them. Everything to lose and nothing to gain. Well, the good news is is that we know that history is driven by fanatical minorities, not majorities. Well, fanatic, fanatical is important. Fanatical means guys who get stuff done. Guys who don't care about stuff. Fanatic doesn't care about that kind of thing. No. Speaking of, of fanatical minorities, I did want to ask you specifically about the execution of Tsar Nicholas. Was there, in fact, a ritual, ritualistic aspect to this execution? One of the best segues I've ever heard in my life. Um, yes. Now I have a book on the topic. Um, I'm on 100th anniversary uh, of the Romanov killings. I forget the name of my own book um, that I published on the very day of the of the anniversary last year. And um, it's just about that one topic. Um, what was found in the wall in the so-called Apatiev house, not Apatiev house, there was no, no one by that name who lived there. That's a, that's a cover story. It was a, um, it was a Jewish gold merchant's house. Um, and but it was written on the wall in the basement where they were killed and sexually molested, by the way, especially the, especially the girls, because they, they didn't die right away. The guys who testified about how they killed them, it took a while. And um, they did it on purpose. And I, I can't, off the top of my head, I can't remember. It essentially said, uh, Balthazar is dead. You know, new order has arisen. Uh, a few, uh, lambda symbol, a, a um, horizontal line, uh, words to that effect. Or Balthazar, and they actually use, you know, T-S-A-R. In our in our in their language, uh, on purpose to you know for the for the double double entendre. Um, that clearly a, a kabbalistic um, idea. It was a ritual killing, a sacrifice, so to speak, and that same incantation has been found elsewhere. I just I can't remember who it was. I cited them in, in, in the book that's been found in the Middle East. It's been found um, the terrorism against the British before the foundation of Israel. You see it done there. Uh, Jewish terrorist cells often use that. They have, don't use it anymore, but they used to use that uh, years ago um, as a way to mark the territory. And the horizontal line means that they are passive participants. Um, they're not. They're taking orders. In other words, some of the people who were involved in the killings spoke later on, and. Um, one of the things that they mentioned, of course, is, is almost entirely a Jewish affair, and the, the bloodthirstiness of it all, um, that some of these guys couldn't continue. You know, some of the girls, just Anastasia, a few others, were, were violated. Um, so, um, and using Rasputin, which is all, that's all made-up nonsense, 
uh, using Rasputin as a way to attack the royal family, um, gave them a this kind of excuse to defile Rome, to defile the last Rome, third Rome, defile old Rome. This was a, a tremendous um, victory. It was an extraordinary victory. Um, so it, well, yeah, it had a ritualist effect in, in that sense. And um, the greatest, I guess the greatest uh, epidemic in world history started then. Um, the uh, Spanish flu started a, a few months before then. The day of the execution, a new strain was found that was invincible. Couldn't, couldn't, no, no antibiotics could be used against it. Um, and I ki- killed more people than any other epidemic in history and wiped out massive numbers. And no one even talks about that for some reason anymore. But I think there's a connection, uh, certainly with the new, new strain of the, the virus, um, on the very day of the execution. But there was this, this like you would start Star Wars fans would say, there's a disturbance in the force. You know, um, there, there's this disturbance in the balance, you know, because Rome is the balance. The, the well, and who was the... The Roman, the ancient, the Roman jurist who described the Jews as the fermenters of a universal plague. Uh, Cicero, I think it's Cicero. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Cicero talked about it a lot. Interesting coincidence. <laughs> yeah. So that's it. In the Talmud, the Talmud, you know, Rome was excoriated. They use different names. Rome is the enemy. And that's why you know, monarchy and, and, and any kind of centralized, uh, whether it be military government, is always going to come under attack. Uh, from these people. The Talmud is excoriates these kind of governments. So this they've been preparing for this for a long time. Remember, when we use the word Jew, and when they used the word Jew back then, they were not referring to Karaites. They were not referring to Samaritans. They were only referring to Talmudic Jews under the rabbinical system. Can you That's distinguish it. at all between the it, Torah and the Talmud it, or, and the Jews that follow the different forms before, of that book? Adam, real quick, before you get into that one, uh, I just wanted to say, and it's because the reason being that military government, uh, Roman style or, or monarchical government is is more immune to the influence of money power. Is that not correct, Dr. Johnson? You are absolutely correct. And I, my latest yeah. book, I'm a busy guy, uh, is I'm the only guy apparently on planet Earth that's defending the military governments during the Cold War in Latin America. Uh, not just Pinochet, but a whole bunch of other. Everyone, everyone had one down there, apparently. These were Peru. Yeah, uh, Velasco and and um, yeah, Brazil and had one too. Yeah, they all did, and um, these were good men. Very few people know anything about them. They're considered, you know, other than Pinochet or, or Perón. Other than those two, no one knows. Everyone assumes that they're evil. And when you read about them, they're actually were quite the contrary. And for the exact same reason you say, they were immune to it. The, the U.S. never supported those guys. They were nationalizing American industry. There's a, a, a funny anecdote in uh, Bronze Age uh, Pervert's book, uh, Bronze Age Mindset, about I think it was Paraguay's uh, military uh, governor or one of those smaller countries in South America. But he basically made the anecdote that uh, this guy lived, breathed, and even slept uh, his nation. He would get up at four in the morning and go to bed at uh, midnight. And every every waking moment of his day was dedicated to his country because he just he he was that vigilant, and th- obviously that's an idealization of, of what you're looking for. But it's that right. sort of ruler that really does care, and it it makes me think of Putin again. And well, I have some thoughts yeah. on that later in the, the show. Once the ruler, down, uh, but, yeah. 
the ruler should be the first servant of the state, no? The leader is one who serves. And usually it's the first in war. I mean, they don't they don't uh, declare war and go have someone else go and fight it. Yeah, you know, that's right. the Greek polis, these men fought it themselves. Um, a monarch became a monarch because he could lead his men into war. That's why men are the politically dominant element. Uh, in Latin America, it's, 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 you know, a lot of these guys, under the idealization of you're talking, I can't think of who you mean, but I know who you, the, the, the military uh, governor who you're talking about, all these guys were that way. These guys were the only way, the, the, the only hope for those countries. They all kicked the bankers out. Uh, Pinochet may have been an exception, but even, even there, uh, he was not allowed to enter the U.S. So I don't know what these people are talking about, that they were they were somehow aided by the U.S. It was never the case. Um, they nationalized property. My favorite is General Velasco in Peru, who was an open national socialist. And, and the other one who called himself a national socialist was General Chung Hee Park in South Korea. You know, it's funny. In Peru, I think they actually used the German helmets, the Stahlhelm. I don't know if that's because of his ideology, but it's something I, I definitely took notice of. And in Argentina, too. Well, it- yeah, and in a re- recent episode, we we discussed uh, the the German war ace Hans Rudel, and he was given refuge in several of these countries. Yeah, makes sense. Um, before I was, uh, I was just wondering if you could uh, speak a little bit about the Talmudic and Torah Jews. I've heard from people who are very critical of some of the Jewish influence in the world uh, try to make that distinction that they're not necessarily anti-Semitic. They just they they abhor the interpretation that the Talmud teaches uh, to the Jews. Do you do you put any credence in that uh, argument? Yeah, the, the, the Talmud is, when we consider modern Jew, Jewry, that's what we're referring to. Michael Hoffman has argued um, constantly and consistently and with, with great academic ability that the so-called Torah has no relationship to Judaism whatsoever. There is no God, there is no religion, it is a secular, materialist ideology. Like the Sanhedrin were, were basically a, a secular, um, um, uh, materialist group, group, group of people, uh, enemies of the Pharisees as a result. The Talmud came into existence, at least its origins are, during the exile in Babylon, where, of course, they immediately rose to the top. They became very powerful. Uh, and deeply involved in the esoteric magical cults. Um, again, it's where, the, where most of the banking stuff comes from. Of course, ancient Israel, the prophets especially, you couldn't have anything to do with this stuff. The Talmud excoriates the prophets of the Old Testament. Excoriates them. That's why there's no connection between the Torah and the Talmud. They're two different religions, two different groups of people, ethnically, two different everything. So from the I'm one of the few people who actually read the whole damn thing. God, volume after volume after volume. We had it at the University of Nebraska in the basement. It's horrible. But you have to know what I'm sorry for your loss, Dr. Johnson. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I, I some of it some of it was just so uh irrelevant and technical. I you know, but for the most part I read the I read the whole damn thing. I can't believe I did it. But uh that was the million that was in the in the before the internet. That was ninety five, I guess. Um, and, but you can't read it without having a, a glossary because they don't use words the same way. They refer to Christ. You, they use different pseudonyms and you have to know what they mean. That, that glossary comes from the Jewish encyclopedia. So that's a lot of work going through this, but damn, you learn a lot about, about that group of people. 
And of course, it is a purely secular, a materialist uh, ideology and a supremacist ideology. Now, the one group that was at war with them were the Karaites, who refused to have anything to do with the Babylonian Talmud uh, and the ideology that it created. During the Spanish Inquisition, as you mentioned, the Karaites were wiped out in Spain. I've seen pictures of the, they're getting their tongues cut out by by the by the Talmudic rabbis. And a rabbi is uh, Talmudic by definition. That's what the rabbinical system is, and the kahal system in Eastern Europe is based on the Talmud. What we consider Judaism in the normal sense today is purely Talmudic. A Karite isn't a Jew in any normal sense of the term. They're someone who they may reject the gospel, but have nothing to do with. And I guess the Samaritans would be another another example. There's a few other small groups. They used to be very big, but have been wiped out by the Jews. And of course, no one knows anything about it because the victors usually write the history books. But the Inquisition in Spain was used to wipe these guys out. So um, there are a few Jews still. There, there are a few hundred thousand Karaites and Samaritans and some other sects whose name I can't remember now um, that use just parts of the Torah and take it very literally. And they're not considered Jews by Jews even struggle with the law of return in Israel because everything revolves around the, the Talmud. The Talmud is everything. And of course, no one knows anything about it. You don't even see an abridged well, edition of the Talmud in, in a bookstore. You know. Since we're going there, I do have an esoteric question I've, I've wondered about for a bit. In your opinion, Dr. Johnson, your understanding of it, uh, do you believe that the Jews were ever held in captivity in Egypt? Yeah. Okay. Well, oh, no, wait, 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 wait. Let me, let me, let me rephrase that. Yeah. Uh, the Israelites were, not today's Jews. Yes, okay, I understand. Yeah, let me make that clear. I mean, I, that's, that's, I, I'm sorry, I answered you quickly. Um, the word Jew is unfortunate mm. because you have people who are so dumb that they think that you know, Isaiah or Jeremiah is pretty much the same guy who has a dentist practice up the street from me. You know, it's laughable. These two groups have nothing from the Israelites and um, today's Jews have nothing in common, and um, they're at war with each other. I've said already that the Talmud condemns the, the prophets because they condemned Israel. If anyone actually bothers to read the actual Old Testament, it's pretty much nothing but God punishing the Israelites for not doing what they're supposed to do. The prophets are cheering on Babylon and Assyria for wiping them out because they were, they were such, such sinners. That's what the prophets did. What kind of propaganda is that? No one actually reads this stuff. And much of the law, our, our law system comes from Deuteronomy and Leviticus that no one reads anymore. Um, and economics and everything else, the prophets were, were, um, were deeply involved with, with economics and, and, uh, and political ideology. That all comes from there. So um, that has nothing to do with the Talmud. The Talmud has page after page of, of obsession with fecal matter and urine, and, and it's, it's bizarre, the, the feces connection there. I couldn't, I couldn't, page after page of this. Thing. <laughs> oh, God. What the hell's the matter with these people? You know, <laughs> I mean, not even a slide. I mean, just, I can't, I just, I mean, pages and pages and pages. And um, so the Jewish obsession with pornography today starts making more sense in this respect. Uh, so, so reading that thing, you know, and I know that there's, of course, you know, they, they hate Christ and Mary and the church, and that is their, and, and Rome, 
and everything that that Europe became, they were at war with. And uh, that's the basis of E. Michael Jones's book on, on, on the Jews, my stuff on it, Michael Hoffman's. And really, all the great writers and, and thinkers of the, of the ancient world in the Middle Ages all have the same thing. Going so far as to say that the Khazar Empire was Gog and Magog. This was this was the a, a, a forerunner of the real Antichrist because they were so vicious and enslaving. And I don't see any difference between between um, the Khazar Empire and how the Jews behaved in, in the Soviet Union um, or even in the 1990s in Russia. So, so this is this is a very ancient doctrine. So now that we, with the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, you would agree then that the United States is probably now the vehicle for the implementation of the New World Order and perhaps even the, the Noahide laws, and the, the belief in the Messiah, etc. It is the head of the snake. Yeah, it is the head of the snake. It is an enemy. It is the fountain of, of liberalism and uh, leftism. Um, and something I don't know if you've come across, I have article after article condemning the U.S. I dislike the U.S. military very much. It's an extremely liberal. It's not like it was in the 50s when my father was there. It's a very, very liberal organization. And, well, um, I'm sure you're aware, Dr. Johnson, uh, that Ron Unz published not too long ago a very good article on the uh, United States military around that time and have, the need for it to have been purged because many of high-ranking uh, members of the United States military were qu quite aware of Jewish infiltration and subversion of American institutions. Uh, like Patton? Yeah, well, yeah. This is the kind of stuff that people like Revelope Oliver were talking about. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, that, that's a good. That's a good example. Uh, the, Obama purged hundreds of generals and admirals uh, the last year of his presidency, and there was no reason given. They didn't do anything wrong. They're not criminals. One thing they had in common was that they were iffy on exactly the topics we're talking about today. Not necessarily even Israel. Just you know, it would be Christianity or or, or you know whatever whatever the right wing stuff. They were they've been wiped out. So you have a lot of these young guys who are being made generals now, um, without combat experience, uh, but they're ideologically they're the guy who runs the Green Beret program. I have a whole thing on him. Um, they've remade the Green the Green Berets aren't you know, anything like they used to be. Um, the women are running things now, uh, no standards, and you have half the professors at Annapolis. They'd say the Naval Academy is a joke. It should be abolished. I have several professors there uh, saying it should be abolished. You know, they they keep putting pinning medals on themselves um, for lost lost wars, and these wars are there yeah. to. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, you know, um, I have a thing on the Bronze Star. They give the Bronze Star to anybody now. If you if you if you keep the the toner in the printer for a year without any kind of criminal activity, you get a damn Bronze Star. Um, and there's actually – there's been publications who have been talking about it. I, I completely obliterate this. They, they pin so many damn medals on themselves. These guys – you know, you, you, you are at Andrews Air Force Base. You're a major. You know, you're making – you're making high – you're in the six figures. Um, yeah, it's, it's enough to make Idi Amin blush. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, again, I, I think he was he – was, anyway um, – <laughs> <laughs> we have a secret yeah. Amin fan. <laughs> he, wasn't, he wasn't that rotten either. He did. He, he never he ate anybody. You know. I, I actually did have at one point on for our, our Skype uh, yeah. conversations. I had an Idi Amin. Avatar, I remember that, Nick. 
No, we, we get emails from people in the service who basically explain that they're getting uh, PowerPoint presentations from HR about uh, diversity inclusion. I mean, you know, yep. they're not talking about war fighting. They're not talking about uh, morale. They're talking about diversity and inclusion, and they're just waiting, waiting out the clock so they can get out of this stupid organization. I mean, it, it's so messed up. Well, since now the primary enemy of of the power American power elite is Russia. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, I guess, supposing conclusion to the subject matter we've covered today, uh, what the Russian attitudes on the revolution now after the fall of the Soviet Union are. I will say for my part, uh, one of the more disturbing things I've ever seen was a lot was the line around Lenin's tomb in Red Square. Uh I know that, of course, the people visiting that were foreign tourists, but uh, I'm, I'm curious, uh, uh, Dr. Johnson, if you could uh, speak as best you can for the Russian, the contemporary Russian people as to what they think about this, how much they're aware of the sort of things that Solzhenitsyn talks about with respect to Russo-Jewish history, and uh, in hindsight, what they all think about it, or at least what are some common opinions and et cetera. Well, we know, and I, I, I read so many forums so many um, uh, military forums, these you know guys in the service going back and forth. Um, I think I have a good, I have a good handle on some of this stuff, um, both in Ukraine and in Russia. Obviously, Putin is extremely popular. Um, you know, he's about his his share of the vote is roughly his popularity, usually out know, between what sixty five and eighty percent, depending on the on the year or the economy, whatever it is. Um, so they like him, and therefore they like his his mentality and, and ideology. Um, they're very respectful of the church. The church, the, the 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 two most trusted offices in Russia, and poll after poll after poll, are the patriarch and President Putin. And they keep saying that if there's no obvious successor, he's not that old of a guy. They want him to violate the constitution and get elected again, if it means that you know he continues. Um, you know, the man did what very few leaders have done. He took a fourth world backwater that was actually disappearing and disintegrating in 1995 and 97 and turned it into a first world powerhouse in what? Seven years, eight years. I mean, very few people have been able to do that. I mean, Hitler did it. And Chongqing Park in South Korea have done it. Well, That's all I know. The, the Russians and the Chinese, I think, have benefited from the mismanagement of the American empire. And not to take anything away from either of those countries, but I think the vacuum that the American uh, mismanagement is creating, and, and if you talk about Putin in particular, uh, and China uh, for that matter, if we want to get into the economics of it, uh, Bush's uh, stupid war in, in Iraq was one of the reasons the price of oil skyrocketed and the development of China and India putting demand on the price of oil as well. But that, that was clearly one of the, the major economic boosts that Putin had. Now, that doesn't take away from his political skills and his ability to unify the country and also suppress a lot of the um, manipulation of the country's government by the oligarchs, no question about it. But um, I think just overall, you know, the, America has just given away so much because of just the corruption that we apparently don't have, but is obvious, I think, to us. Just wanted to put that in there. But I, I'm a big fan of Putin myself. Yeah. The US, I, I'd like US. to add as well, uh, is it it is true, Dr. Johnson, that uh, Putin uh, met with Solzhenitsyn before Solzhenitsyn died? 
Oh, many times. Yeah, yeah. Many times, um, yeah. I have, I have, there are pictures all over the place. Yep. Yes. Yeah, he, he, had, he had 200 years together. Yeah. <laughs> he was endorsed for him. <laughs> Give me no question about it. Yeah, okay. That's what I was getting at. I was curious. Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, well, Putin has said, I could send you the link for it, that, you know, Jews, you know, um, controlled the early years of the USSR, and it was a very bad thing. Um, but now, as far as Lenin's tomb is concerned, you know, you have, a, you have a strand in Russian thinking that pretends that Bolshevism and communism and Marxism are not related. That Bolshevism, in fact, especially under Stalin a little bit later, was a purely Russian national phenomenon. Now, I vehemently disagree with this. But because Russia became a strongly, oh, it's not Russia, USSR was a militarized, powerful society that the world feared, at least for a while, compared with the 1990s, um, these guys get a certain respect. Now, I think it's simplistic. Um, but if there's any connection, now there, there's been, there's groups like the Nova Rosa group. There's so many national groups that I'm friends with. I talk with all the time. They have a picture of Tsar Nicholas, the double-headed eagle, and Lenin. And as if there's no problem there. You know, and they do this all the time. The Communist Party of the Soviet Union is one of the most right-wing organizations in, 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 in the world right now. And they well, they write just like we do in every respect. They're they're Orthodox. They're they're Pan Slavists. They're they hate the New World Order. They talk about the Jews and Ustery all the time. Sounds like you're reading the old Spotlight, except the very last sentence of the article, they'll say, "And well, thank thank God for the for the Lenin's glorious revolution," or something like that. Something stupid like that. It gets tacked on, you know, for the old timers. You know, and it's weird. Americans have to be sensitive to that. It's weird. I think it's, it, but um. You, you have this notion that was the last time that Russia was feared as an empire was under these guys, and therefore they get a certain backhanded respect as a result. What do you make of the thinking amongst the right wing in Europe and uh, to a certain extent in America, in the case of, I guess, Francis Parker Yaki, after the war that, uh, that the USSR was able to serve as a counterweight to the new world order or, you know, liberal imperialism, et cetera. And that it is better that uh, Europe be occupied by uh, Soviets than by the Americans. Well, after, after Khrushchev's death, um, you know, if, if you were, you, know, you had the hippies in America and the drug addicts and everything else, you know, if they went to Castro's Cuba or Brezhnev's Soviet Union, they'd be put in prison immediately. In that sense, they were a right-wing government, and that's where the that's where the problem comes in. Um, it depends on the year. Now, the early years of the Soviet Union, absolutely not. They're they're a leftist, um, you know, like a big big, well, big they, university. They, didn't they legalize a homosexual marriage in the early years? Yes, like, right after the revolution. In the early years, yeah. polygamy, then, all that shit, open marriages, and you yeah. could get yeah divorces by writing to the commissar or something. Very easy. Uh, marriage, yeah. Christian marriages was banned. All this stuff. Uh, divorce was very easy to get. Men had to pay all the. But the problem was, free love. That's Alexander Kollontai was the Leninist leader who who would eventually purged, who authored a lot of these things. The kind of the feminist uh, Marxist in the early years of the Soviet Union. Um, but you had a lot of kids with no parents. You had guys not showing up to work. Not taking care of kids. 
So you, even while Lenin was still alive, they had to reverse all of that. So, so our so. our marriage laws and divorce laws were considered too radical for Trotsky and Lenin. Marriage laws that we have in America and the sexual system we have in America were considered too radical for the most radical years of the Soviet Union and had to be thrown away. Well, a, a lot of uh, American public policy and culture, for that matter, has been shaped uh, by the forces that the Soviets were actually encouraging to destabilize us. I mean, this is the whole Yuri Bezmenov thesis. Uh, all, all these uh, radicals that were screwing up the, the country were being effectively promoted by uh, the enemy and, to weaken us. And, and speaking of that, Adam, speaking of uh, revolution through degeneracy and culture distortion, uh, what, Dr. Johnson, do you think the CIA really hopes to accomplish by pushing things like Pussy Riot? Jeez. Yeah, that's so funny. It's it's getting it's getting Putin out of the way. They yeah, want they want Russia to be like a banana republic, like they want Latin America to be. Um, but do they think that it will work? I mean, it's not like Pussy Riot is actually popular in Russia. No, they're not. They're not even a band. I don't even know what people say. They're not even a band. They're a complete they're joke. A, they're they're a joke. No, no, no yeah. it's, it's um <laughs> they they, push, they they defend them. You know, the NGOs send them money. They but it's not just them. It's it's all of those kind of you know liberal things. Uh, that get promoted by the NGOs, which is why Putin kicked him out of the country. Sure, sure. Uh, and Scientology and so many of the Protestant evangelicals. Any group that gets the majority of its money from out of the country can't function politically in the I country. I think the Mormons got arrested <laughs> last exactly, year. Exactly, right. And the Christian scientists. <laughs> well, as our, our listeners are probably aware of it, that the, more, the LDS is uh, used often for CIA operations. Yeah, no, it is. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wonder, you know, I, I think I just did a, a show with Sven uh, Longshanks on Radio Albion about the um, Jody Arias murder. Uh, a totally separate topic, of course, but the, the, the um, and how the, what's happening to that prosecutor who was anti-feminist, uh, and that whole case was based on him destroying the whole um, men are evil, they beat women, and therefore they should kill men with impunity argument. The whole defense was made of. That's why this guy is now under vicious attack, Juan Martinez. Um, and people are saying, like in the comments of, of the YouTube uh, uh, videos and everything else, that there's this LDS intelligence connection here. Um, people who think that Jody Harris is innocent, which is, I think is nonsense, uh, somehow point to this very same connection. That the, the LDS is this, uh, uh, like, uh, like Scientology, um, has, has these connections. I, I, I guarantee you, one of the reasons that Putin kicked them out was the intelligence connection. Uh, I, I guarantee – I don't know that for a fact, but uh, the people who got arrested last year, that were the, the guys – I think it was a Christian scientist. Maybe it was some of the Mormons. Christian scientists who wouldn't bring their kids to the doctor, and a couple kids died, and they got arrested, and the religion was kicked out of the country, which I thought was wonderful. But you had the Protestants, evangelicals, saying, oh, my God, he's banning Christianity. It was front page of, the, of the, one of their newspapers. But that was a group that he was attacking. So, and, and all these the Protestant evangelicals in the 90s, they were they were everyone was saying um, that pastor in Turkey, uh, who's in prison, the Turkish Turks are saying that he's that he's CIA. That's how they function. That's the same group of people, the pro-Zionist uh, evangelical Protestant. Um, that is one of the one of the heads of the Hydra. Now, 
I wanted to hit a few odds and ends before we close. I have one final uh, like closing topic to discuss. But before we hit that, a few odds and ends that are interesting, maybe only to me, but maybe some of our listeners that I just kind of shoot at you. Uh, one thing I've always been curious about, since you know so much about Solzhenitsyn and the Russian language, uh, as a, a fan, of, I am a fan of the the, the Russian novelist Vladimir Nabokov, and uh, albeit uh, I, there's some caveats to that but he is a, he is a good writer uh there was a point in which when he was living in a hotel in switzerland that uh he was supposed to meet with solzhenitsyn are you familiar with the story at all and can shed any light on why it is that they never i've never read i've never read Nabokov before i have a book out on russian literature uh but it's orthodoxy in russian literature uh and i don't mention him at all i've never read him Okay, that that's that's fine. I just thought I'd ask because it's something that's always interested me. Uh, my other question on the same literary bent is what you think of the book Quiet Flows the Dawn? Oh, I've read that several times. Um, you know that he you know he's from a um, he's from a Cossack background. Uh, I mean it's it's a dissenting book. It's been a long time. I actually lectured on that at Mount St. Mary's years ago. Obviously not the whole thing, the pieces of it that were that were of interest. I taught a regular USSR class and a pre-revolutionary Russia class. In the USSR class, of course, I mentioned um, Sholokov, um, and and that and that it was a tremendous tremendous piece of work. Uh, I don't even remember what I dealt with on that, but it was a tremendous work of um, of dissent, you know. But but it has to be understood, you know, it was it was written there. You know, there's only there's certain things you just couldn't say, but it was it was a huge dissenting work. It was it was extraordinary. It, it's long. Uh, but it's definitely worth your time. There's a million English translations of it out there now. Yeah, I read it in English uh, in very few sittings in a Moscow hotel room many years ago, and I just didn't know if it held up as well uh, as as I oh, remembered yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, I, I guarantee you, very few sittings. That's impressive because of the the, the length. But it shouldn't. Well, I really liked it, and I it had shouldn't no surprise you. Yeah, it's a tremendous piece of work. Uh, and one one more book I wanted to ask you about is uh, Joseph Conrad's work uh, Under Western Eyes. What do you think of this? I don't. I read. I haven't read it. I have not read it. Okay, sure. I just these are things that are interesting to me. And while I had your ear, I wanted to to ask. I, well, I, I had a final thought before yours, Nick. Uh, I'll let you sure, have a final ahead. word if I can get a chance. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about what the future holds for the american empire america as a country whatever you want to call it i don't even know what what the society is anymore but uh it's very striking to compare and contrast the end of the soviet union in what happened in russia and what happened in the united states you know for example george soros is uh, allowed to operate with impunity in the united states i'm sure he has multiple homes and uh, billions of dollars in bank accounts uh, yet in Russia, he's, uh, he's on the wanted list. If he ever enters the country, he'll be arrested. Uh, so that, that's a quite an interesting contrast to talk about who, uh, who is allowed to operate and who has sovereignty. Um, I was uh, recently uh, asked by uh, an interviewer if I thought there would be a, a right-wing revolution, to paraphrase what he was asking me, uh, in America in the next 10 years. And I had to say, honestly, unfortunately, I don't see it. I mean, we, we thought Trump might be able to bring us some of what Putin has brought to Russia. But unfortunately, I, I, would, I would have to say Trump is, and this is a very rough analogy, but he's more akin to maybe Gorbachev than he is to Putin. Uh, or I wouldn't well, that's say not a bad, That's not a bad one at all. That's not a bad analogy at all. I never thought of that before. Yeah, I, I just thought of it. And I, I don't see him as the reformer 
who's going to bring us to where we want to be, but he may be the disruptor that will get us to. The, I might have to steal that. I might yeah. have to steal that. That's that's a good one. I, I think there's a lot oh, there. Yeah. I used to always think that Trump, especially after his first year in office, definitely represented um, von Hindenburg, who was sort of the last establishment figure in the Weimar Republic. This sort there, of there's old, a similar there's a connection between Gorbachev. Yeah, that yeah. that. There's, some, there's definitely something to that. I don't know if anyone's ever mentioned that elsewhere. Yeah, I've never heard it either. Um, but really what I'm asking is uh, I, I don't think, you know, we the little people have much hope in reforming the top. I think what we can do is organize you know, on, the, on a local level, on a, on a person-to-person basis like we're doing right now, and that's what we continue to do. But as you said, I mean, we're, we're basically persona non grata in society. And until we get a very large shakeup, I don't think we're going to have what we're really wanting on a societal level. Where, where do you see the opportunities, if any, for that happening? Uh, and what can we do in the meantime is really my, my final question to you. You know, um, for a long time, I, I mentored uh, Matthew Heinbeck before everything, you know, happened. And um, I mentored him even before I knew him when he was first developing as a, as a right winger. And one of the reasons that when he first finally got in touch with me, uh, telling me all this, one of the things he said struck me. And that was, I've said this before, I mean, he's kind of paraphrasing me, but I like how he said, as the economy begins to falter, as people lose faith in it, as the currency gets less and less valuable, as as people aren't really looking to the future anymore, as as the bank, banks get bailed out because everything is about asset stripping now and everything else, um, you have more and more people like us looking for answers. Um, people don't have faith, especially when you have winners. See, in a healthy society, you wouldn't be doing this. We'd be we'd be normal people doing doing normal things. But when you take people like us out of circulation, because we have no no faith in the system and and millions of others, uh, that's a problem. And when winners are taken out of the system, you have a problem. Losers are always out of it. But, but when you take winners out of the system because they don't have any that, – that's, that's the problem. As the economy falters, um, our obligation is to build alternative institutions to whatever – I don't care how informal that might be. Um, it's, not, it's not glamorous. You know, like the thing in, in Pikeville, the big Pikeville rally that I was at that I was very happy to be – you know, to build, um, you know – a food drive for the poor Appalachian uh, miners and the people who had been, you know, shut out after after 2008. That was a great idea. The left tried to shut it down. We won, but that was the notion. Building these things at the local level in areas like Appalachia, where I live, uh, not in Kentucky, but up in up in Pennsylvania, um, and building on local communities, especially ethnic ones and parish ones. Um, these institutions are going to have to have more and more authority, including economic authority, as time goes on, because people are going to have no choice but to withdraw from the from the official system. When you people get you know, we get fired from from jobs when uh, they go after us from stupid uh, uh, criminal things or, or or family things or or um, uh, you know tax things, whatever they do to, to get go after us, eliminate our PayPal's, eliminate our credit cards. We did the Barnes review for a while. You know, we're going to have no choice. You know, either you put a gun to your head or you begin building entirely new uh, ways of living from the ground up. And um, that's what that, you know, the Trinidad Workers Party was supposed to be. 
That's why I liked it so much in the first place. I still think that the idea is a very, very, very good one. Um, now, the only thing that's going to help here is because everything's gradually going to help. But Americans are so uninformed and the press manipulates statistics that the U.S. could go into a deep depression and Americans won't even know it. Because the U.S. is in a, is in a tremendous – America's in the same position as the Great Depression. We're, we're already in one. I mean, just look at yeah, the actual Great Depression. people out they of work. Yeah. They just don't know it. The credit's being used. Credit's being extended rationally to, to cover a few bills. And people have already eaten up the value in their homes. But, you know, um, there will be a time, whether it be a war with China that the U.S. can't win or a massive crash of the dollar, which is not insane um, – where there's going to be a radical shift, a radical uh, uh, collapse that the system really can't handle or takes some time for it to work through, um, we're going to have to have institutions already to some extent in place. And I'm telling you, everyone who's listening to this show, have a plan and action. If things go to hell, if especially if Trump gets reelected, the left says they're going, to, they're going to burn the place to the ground, have a place to go if things really go bad. If the power goes out, whatever happens, um, uh, have a place to go, have a group of people to get together, have a place to meet and everything else just in case things really uh, collapse. And they may well do it. Uh, the system's talking about a military coup against Trump if it gets reelected anyway. So who knows? You have to have that plan in action. And these kind of things can be the foundation for, um, for a new society. I, I love the example of the, um, the TV show um, – the Walking Dead, when it first came out. I love The Walking Dead because most of these guys were nobodies. They were um, they were just ordinary guys. They, they didn't have any significance. But because the system collapsed, because there was no power, there was no the politics, there was no the cops, everything collapsed, all of a sudden, men had to be men again. Uh, uh, the old mor morals came back again. Um, uh, the communal structures were the only things that kept people alive. They had to completely revamp who they are as people. So people who were nobodies in the old society, when the zombies you know came out, whatever, which is a uh, metaphor, but um, those nobodies all of a sudden become great leaders. Uh, and and that struck me in that show. And I love using that that metaphor because um, the people who we may be bureaucrats now or nobodies now or struggling now. But if anything were to happen radically in the next few years, um, who's going to be the next next leader? Who's going to be these these guys like you see on, on TV? Uh, and, and I say this because, remember, in 1988, 1989, nobody said – no one saw the Soviet Union going to collapse. No one saw this happening. Not the CIA, not anybody else. And within a year, less than a year, the Soviet Union has gone. They went from a massive empire to zero. Almost overnight. This is the reason that I have believed and continue to believe that we should not be in the business of moderating our positions now for the times that exist now, but instead be, be putting out the truth as we see it for the benefit of the future and what may come to pass. You're exactly right. Who are you trying to please? That's exactly right. And that brings me to my final question, which is very much in line with what we're talking about here, and that is – 
Do you see something like the October Revolution as being possible in the United States? And I know, of course, we could say that the the Bolsheviks or their their liberal cousins are already in control of the American state and would have no need for a, an overt takeover of the the power system. But at the same time, uh, they haven't really started the execution halls yet. So is that something that you could conceivably see happening? Well, the funny thing about the, the October Revolution, which we never bothered to talk about, was the. <laughs> The Cornelius, there was an attempt um, under Kerensky for the military to take over. Maybe he arranged it or not, doesn't matter. Uh, it was seen that he was going to take over and restore order to St. Petersburg. And he failed. He failed badly. And the left, the communists were able to mobilize their forces against him. He eventually led the volunteer army and the white, white forces later on. So you needed this, this provocation, so to speak, from from the army uh, to organize all the forces of the left into one one force, which eventually became the Red Army. Um, and of course, you also need World War One, which in this case would be a war with Russia or China or both. Um, but remember, in that case, if the, the war with Russia and China, they're going to win. And that means liberalism is going to be humiliated. So in that sense, I don't know. Uh, I don't see why the regime really needs camps when the entire suburbs and inner cities or universities are one big camp. Yeah, they don't have barbed wire or anything else. They're far, far better organized than that. Um, but at the same time, we don't have institutions. You know, Donald Trump could have been a far more effective leader, but he has nobody. There's not a single organization that he could rely on. There's not. There's nobody. There, there's a indiv- handful of individuals that in the beginning thought he was going to – he has nobody. There's not, a, there's not a party. There's not a movement. There's not a think tank. There's nothing. He was. He's all by himself. And that's one of the reasons that I think they broke the guy with all this abuse. My, my main concern, though, is that the system won't be able to restrain its own fanatics. And once they taste blood, they, they won't stop. What do you mean? Well, I mean that the uh, once they can start to get away, you see, for example, this happening in uh, I think I think the city, I, American city, I look to as kind of the the canary in the cold mine is uh, Portland, Oregon, and these oh, people boy. keep getting away with more and more and more. And once the writing's on the walls that they can really just do whatever they want and you know maybe commit murders and assassinations yeah. with impunity, uh, that they won't stop. Antifa just killed one of their own. But they won't talk to the police, and not that the police do anything in Portland. But yeah, it's it's anarcho tyranny in Portland, no question. Yeah. And I'm well, not even saying that's necessarily the worst thing for us. I mean, the calamity is ahead regardless, and it's not you know, it's not about trying to save the sinking ship. But I just uh, trying to think where this might be headed and how quickly it might be going there. Well, what 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 you guys said about moderating? This is who are you trying to please at this point? People who have power may not have power in, in a year. You know, there's only so much money the U.S. taxpayer can cough up to bail out bankers and their absurdity. One big giant lost war, like, like you know World War One or World War Two. Look, look at the look at the how it remade the maps of these places. Um, anything can happen. The problem is that we have no organization. Now, maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm miss. Um, Maybe I'm underestimating things. I, I, I underestimated America. I didn't think Trump was going to win. 
because I thought people were going to be afraid of all the threats and oh, they, they can't go to the, you know they could go to prison if they vote for uh, Trump, but they did, in far larger numbers than we than we realized. Is there more out there than we know, especially in small town America and ethnic America and religious America? Is there more um, organization at the local level that we don't even know about? They're not in the pe- press. They don't have websites. Um, is there more out there than we realize? When the left pushes, like you're talking about, more and more and more, and, you know, beat cops aren't going to tolerate that. Soldiers aren't going to tolerate that. Eventually, you're going to have factions form, uh, just like in, in, in the October Revolution. Um, and, you know, they're playing with fire. If, 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 as far as an armed issue is concerned, we, we win. There's no doubt about that. I, I can't picture the, the U.S. military uh, overthrowing uh, Trump in favor of, of Joe Biden or Hillary. That, that's, that's ridiculous. Um, or really any system politician. So, uh, but but our, our, our dread I have right now is that we have no organization. They do. And that's what that, that's what you're talking about. They have the institutions already there um, with a lot of money and fanatics. And we have the people. Uh, we have the ideology. We have the truth. But we don't have any legal organization of any kind. I don't know. Maybe I'm underestimating it. Oh, we need fanatics, organizations, and money. Fanatics are guys who get things done. That's fanatics right. are people who don't care what happens to them. I'm a fanatic. I'm very proud to be a fanatic. I just don't care. You know, my, my name, address, my license plate number is online. I don't care. Um, and nothing you can do about a guy like me. So, but it takes, you know, it's going to take more extreme events. Um to create more people, as nutty as I am. But as I said many times before, all the system really has to do is take some guy who claims to be a right winger with a machine gun, mow down some kids in a in a in a in a, in a uh, playground with a sign that says "White Power," and you'll have Americans wanting us dead. Really, that's all it's going to take, and that's that scares the crap out of me. Well, uh, we're very pleased to have had the fanatical Dr. Johnson on. Uh, I think everyone has enjoyed this program. I think it was very good. And I would say to people, if you would like maybe Dr. Johnson to return in the future, uh, you should show him some support and to buy his recent book, which I mentioned at the start of the program, and it can be found at the Barnes Review. It's the Soviet experiment. And perhaps uh, next time he comes to join us, we can discuss the October Revolution. Thank you very much, Dr. Johnson. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Cause your blood's running cold
the skin. 